0: Welcome to Franchise Festival, where we explore the historical evolution of noteworthy video game series and then go hands-on with each entry to give you our thoughts on how they play. For Season 2, which is planned to run from 2021 through 2022, we'll be covering Capcom's Resident Evil, from its origins in the 1980s to the studio's latest survival horror epic. If you'd like to dip into Season 1, which covered The Legend of Zelda, you can find all of our episodes on the podcast app of your choice or online at FranchiseFestivalPodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please consider contributing to us by visiting Patreon.com FranchiseFestival. Backer benefits include bonus episodes and the opportunity to vote on future episode topics. Episodes on core Resident Evil games will remain free to all, of course, so no worries if backing us financially isn't your cup of tea. Listens, shares, reviews, and comments are all just as valuable to us. Finally. A couple words of warning before we get started. Resident Evil is a horror series that includes a fair amount of violence, so the show may not be suitable for younger listeners. Every episode will also thoroughly spoil the game we're covering, so please be sure to seek it out ahead of time if you want to remain surprised. New episodes on Core Series entries will premiere on the first of every month, so you'll know in advance which game we're playing next. As ever, we're your hosts Chris, I'm Spencer, and I'm Hamilton. And we're glad to have you with us today. Let's talk Resident Evil. we'd set this up with a little bit of the historical background of horror in the video game medium. There were almost certainly quite a few horror text adventures that were made for like mainframe computers and college campuses and stuff in the 70s. The first that I could find that got a really wide mainstream release was Nostromo of 1981. This was an adaptation of Alien for PC. And it used those kind of like little ASCII symbols like you'd expect, like text symbols and so forth, like you'd see in uh, Rogue or what have you. What is often cited as the first horror game, however, is Haunted House from 1982. This was an Atari 2600 game. The player character, due to the the graphics of the time, of course, is just represented by a pair of eyes, which, um, as we'll get into later... Visual fidelity really matters with horror, and so um, having sort of a cartoonish pair of eyes is not really going to spook players too much. Friday the 13th is maybe the silliest of these uh, early horror games. And, you know, frankly, I don't see this cited as a horror game very often, but it scared me when I was younger. So um, this is, of course, an adaptation of the uh, popular horror film for the Nintendo Entertainment System, It combines an over-the-shoulder perspective when exploring interiors of cabins and so forth, and a side-scroller perspective when you're moving around Camp, what is it, Camp Crystal Lake? Um, anyway, point of this is that, um, there's, there's kind of a ticking timer that's constantly counting down throughout this game. And so you get a game over if you're killed or if enough of the campers die during the in-game three-day limit. This sort of moves the genre forward in a certain way because you are constantly balancing the tools that you have and the resources that you have, be it the time limit, how much time you have left, or weapons that you've picked up or so forth, against losing campers. So you're you're trying to balance fighting enemies and avoiding enemies. Uh, the game ends when the player kills Jason, and uh, Jason is kind of an omnipresent threat in this. This is, in my opinion, maybe kind of the first video game version of of resident evil's nemesis boss uh, because jason will appear semi-randomly around camp crystal lake and uh, very easily kills the player if it if uh, he encounters the player indoors it's not a great game hamilton i think you said you watched uh, i've watched yeah i've watched gameplay
1: of it and from what i understand it's not great because it's it's infamously hard yeah and it's infamously hard because it's infamously cheap (laughs) yeah it is (laughs) So I believe that, um, because Jason, unlike Nemesis, there's really no good way, as far as I understand, to fight off Jason. Um, so you're going to have a lot of very cheap deaths. Yeah. Um, so go check it out. But I mean, I would not recommend that you, that
0: anyone really play it (laughs) unless you like being frustrated. Certainly don't drop a lot of money on this game, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just live vicariously through us and others. (laughs) Interesting as these earlier games are, the next two are really the the key precedent for Resident Evil. The first of these is Sweet Home from 1989, which was released on the Famicom in Japan, but never made it outside of that country. This was developed by Capcom, who uh, Resident Evil fans will know, of course, is the studio that developed Resident Evil. This was directed by Tokuro Fujiwara and uh, his staff as a licensed tie-in to a Japanese horror movie, also from 1989, called Sweet Home. It adapted the basic premise of the movie, which is uh, sort of a a documentary team in a a haunted house, but the events of the game are very different from the events of the movie, because Capcom, I guess much as they would be with some other big properties, like uh, DuckTales and so forth, were given kind of free reign to tell a unique story, more suited to video games than cinema or TV. Did, did Capcom make DuckTales? Yeah, Capcom made DuckTales. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, there's a really great release that's, what is it, like the Disney Afternoon Collection, and it collects huh. like all of Capcom's NES platformers. I did not know they're the ones that made that. Fascinating. They were firing on all cylinders in the 80s. It's a great game. Sweet Home is mechanically a top-down RPG that... <laughs> funny enough, looks more like Dragon Quest than anything else. And this is, of course, kind of famously the first uh, Japanese role-playing game from 1986. It even has turn-based battles, which you don't really associate with horror. Uh, But in the battles, uh, you play as this group of uh, one or more of a group of hapless documentary filmmakers trying to fight evil uh, demons and ghosts and so forth in uh, a haunted mansion. The mansion itself is pretty creepy. I have to say, for an NES game, this is plainly as scary as they could get. It never did get localized outside of Japan due to concerns over its graphic imagery, and and it really does have some graphic imagery for 1989, and it was then never re-released even within Japan due to Capcom's inability to maintain the Sweet Home license from whichever film company it was that released it. So Sweet Home kind of faded into the background, but it left a really big mark on Fujiwara, who had created it. Um, he, he felt that he had done as best as he could with the uh, technology, but thought that he could do a bit better. Next we have Alone in the Dark from 1992, which was a PC game developed by France's Infogrames Studio. Spencer, you're our French speaker. Uh, how would you pronounce that?
2: I'm not going to touch that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It looks like Infograms. Yeah, Infograms is what I was going to guess. So this was, uh, this is kind of an interesting game that I hadn't played until recently uh, when I wrote an article on it. But it, it is frankly Resident Evil, but not as good. It's, uh, it it has a third person perspective with fixed camera angles and pre-rendered backgrounds, that you move your character models around on. Uh, Character models and enemies are simplistic flat-shaded polygons, as opposed to the textured polygons of Resident Evil. And we're not really going to be able to convey this uh, via audio, so I do recommend listeners who are interested in what the difference is between these two types of character models, look them up online. If Memory Serves, Wikipedia has a good article on these two different art techniques. But the character models in Alone in the Dark are much more simplistic and cartoonish than they would be in Resident Evil. Famously, or perhaps infamously, Alone in the Dark introduced tank controls to the world. Tank controls are essentially where your character avatar rotates in place using the left and right directions, and then by pressing up or down, moves forward or backward relative to the direction they're facing. This is really useful when using fixed camera angles, so that the player's button presses don't have to get reoriented every time the camera switches position. You could contrast it, for example, with Super Mario 64, where whenever you press up, Mario is going to move away from the camera, and whenever you press down, Mario will move toward the camera, which works in Mario 64 because the camera is consistent. Uh, so tank controls are a really useful concession. Um, they, they make it so if the player wanders into a new screen, holding up still moves the character forward. They are not remotely popular, as we're going to talk about <laughs> soon. As far as the framing device of Alone in the Dark, it is like Resident Evil set in a spooky mansion, and involves the player choosing one of two characters, a male or a female avatar with slightly different stories and abilities, to navigate through that mansion. It's much more ghost and demon-oriented as opposed to the, the sort of science horror of Resident Evil, but there's a lot in common between the two. Along to the development of Resident Evil, I thought it worth mentioning very briefly what our main sources are for this information. The first is a very recent book by Alex Aniel, who uh, currently works for Limited Run Games. I think he's based in Japan, uh, but the book itself is called Itchy Tasty, An Unofficial History of Resident Evil. It's incredible. It, it includes a series of interviews with various folks who have worked on Resident Evil from 1996 up through, I believe, 2006. The second source is a very odd promotional material that was given to Japanese players who pre-ordered the Saturn version of Resident Evil uh, and was later translated into English as part of a giveaway by Capcom in the United States. This was called, uh, in Japan, Biohazard, the true story behind Biohazard. And in America, Resident Evil, the book, it included a bunch of weird story content that was set before the events of Resident Evil that's more or less ignored by the rest of the series. It, g- it goes into like Chris's backstory as a cop and like the relationship between Barry and Wesker, all kinds of crazy junk, um, but also has a bunch of cool development material on the game. Finally, Shinji Mikami, the main creator of Resident Evil, did a really extensive interview with GameSpot in 2016 that I would recommend folks read, and of course we'll link to it in our notes. Development of Resident Evil began on the Super Nintendo, strangely enough, and while it's a little bit hard to imagine a version of Resident Evil on the Super Nintendo, I suspect it would look a lot like Clock Tower that came out on that console, which is very Resident Evil-esque. It was spearheaded by Fujiwara, who you might recall had worked on Sweet Home in the 80s. Uh, he was kind of a big shot at Capcom by the early 1990s. And he had a passion for horror and really wanted to make it a video game genre. Because horror, despite what, what the impression you might get from our historical overview, it was still very much on the margins of uh, gaming during this period. So he originally pitched to Capcom Corporate a remake of Sweet Home. But since Capcom couldn't secure the license to that that intellectual property at that time and releasing it overseas would be tough, Capcom had become much more of an international company in the intervening years, the studio decided to create something entirely new in the style of Sweet Home. Fujiwara then picked Shinji Mikami as the project director. Mikami had been a rising star at Capcom for his lead role in the Super Nintendo's Goof Troop, and Aladdin games from the early 90s. Uh, longtime video game fans, I suspect, will especially remember that Aladdin game. Uh, it was a real hit and recently re-released. It's, it's still pretty engaging. Um, it, it's about as far from survival horror as it gets. So I think we're, we're lucky that Shinji Mikami happened to be good at, at developing various styles. But if memory serves, there is a giant snake boss in the
2: Aladdin game. So I think so. Oh, yeah. good point. Yeah. Connections.
0: Yeah, the original yawn. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where it came from. (laughs) Yeah. Capcom believed that the future was largely with CD-ROM technology, so they shifted development of this Sweet Home successor to the PlayStation as soon as development kits became available. Most video game genres don't really depend on graphical fidelity. Like, platformers still exist, but they existed in the 2D era. Shooters... Uh, are more lifelike than ever, but Doom is already really good. Uh, Role-playing games are much bigger and more open world and and look more realistic than they might have in the past, but really the DNA of Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy is still there. But horror is almost unique among video game genres for improving by leaps and bounds with visual fidelity. I mean, a lot of horror
1: games also tend to occlude... Like Silent Hill right, or right. things like that. They actually tend to occlude certain uh, details or make places misty. I mean, that's why a lot of horror movies also, it's dark <laughs> yeah. or it's raining. Because not only are you still playing as a character that needs to walk through this, this is your experience, which already makes it scary. But also, as you see something coming into place, your brain is starting to create what that image of something terrifying mm-hmm. is. So when it appears, it's less it's less disappointing to your senses because you're just like, oh God, something's coming after me. That's why, again, in horror movies, you never really see the monster. They usually don't just appear. Yeah. Um, in the first Resident Evil game, you see the dogs, but you don't really see them at first. You hear them.
0: Yeah, and um, even when you do
1: see them, they're not like up exactly. close. There's still
0: like an occlusion to it. You're and
1: right. the second game that we will cover later on, there's an, um, there's an enemy that crawls on the surface of the ceiling. But you don't hear – you don't see it. You hear it. Yeah. So again, it is it is a combination of senses that makes it truly unique. But yes, the more terrifying something is and the more that you build it up, then yes, when you see it visually, then it's really terrifying.
2: Hamilton touched on this a little bit already, but it's not just the graphics, but sound fidelity is extremely mm-hmm. important for horror as yeah, well. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And maybe we'll touch on it later in specific sections, but the sound design in Resident Evil, I think, is really excellent um, because of the fixed camera angles. There's a lot of instances where you're relying on sound to identify if there's danger present And the sounds that you hear of like the zombies shuffling or the sounds that they mm-hmm. make when they're eating is not something that you can really, you know, create with the sound processor that like a Super Nintendo had, for example.
0: That's a really good point, because if you go back and play Haunted House, uh, the Atari 2600 certainly didn't have the power to have, say, a soundtrack. It could barely do sound effects. And then even once you get to Sweet Home, uh, you've got uh, like a chiptune soundtrack, which is wonderful for something like Mega Man, but really struggles to deliver scares. uh, And and of course, there's no ambient sound effects whatsoever.
1: Yeah, I was going to say like a game... I mean, once you, let's say, like, you begin a horror game, and they do this on purpose, especially when they have the technology to do so, mm-hmm. you're walking through, and a, cr- a crow suddenly flies away. Naturally, you're going to jump. And then you hear a door close.
0: Yeah. You hear
1: a branch snap.
0: I can by hear the it time,
1: now. By the time something starts coming at you, even if you're, it's not, quote, scary to you, you're going to freak out
0: at it because you're already in a heightened state of anxiety. Exactly. Yeah, it's well crafted. Mm-hmm. So the earliest experiments by Mikami and his team on the PlayStation differed quite a bit from the game that we would eventually get, but they were always set in a spooky isolated mansion inspired by Sweet Home, as well as Stanley Kubrick's interpretation of The Shining. The first concept that was abandoned along the way were ghost enemies. These were pulled directly from Sweet Home. Uh, Longtime survival horror fans will know just how creepy ghosts can be in a horror game from the uh, Fatal Frame series, but Mikami decided to drop them in favor of zombies, which had been inspired by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead and Lucio Fulci's Zombie. He was particularly interested in the fact that one of the main sources of tension in zombie cinema tends to be characters making stupid decisions, and so he wanted to create a zombie story where you could make the right choices and actually defeat the undead. The next concept that was dropped from the Resident Evil prototype was cooperative gameplay. Uh, This is something that would turn up quite a bit later on in the series, but was there from day one. It was there pre-day one, in fact. It would have used the PlayStation Link cable to connect two PlayStation consoles with players playing on two separate televisions rather than using split screen but it was dropped due to technical concerns. There aren't a lot of details on that, but it seems they couldn't quite get the game to run correctly. My favorite thing that was dropped from Resident Evil, though, were cyborgs. Uh, The player was originally intended to have a team of companions with cybernetic enhancements. Uh, One of these you can find in some of the development materials. It's a character by the name of Gelzer. This was an oversized heavy weapon specialist. He looks kind of like a monster. Um, And he has, like, a cybernetic eye, like uh, Kano from Mortal Kombat. He would have held up the collapsing ceiling trap that still appears in the finished game to save Jill. And it's believed that he was replaced by the character of Barry. The other cut character from the game is Dewey, who would have been an Eddie Murphy-inspired comedy relief character. They, uh, They broadly dropped the comedy elements as well as the futuristic elements when makami hired kenichi iweo to write the final script of the game makami had drafted up kind of a broad scenario overview but iweo was brought on and really stripped it of a lot of that extraneous content and focused in on what made it scary and that's how we got the the version of resident Evil's story that we got interestingly there were two very different mechanical builds of the game that existed at some point during development as well, in addition to these concepts. The first was a first-person version of Resident Evil. It was uh, originally designed as kind of a first-person shooter. This didn't work because the textures were too low quality in the early days of the PlayStation to have the level of uh, like specificity and scares that Mikami wanted. When you saw the textures up close, they lost too much of their visual fidelity and kind of fell apart. They then moved on to a third-person version of the game that had more real-time action mechanics. This had polygonal environments rather than pre-rendered environments. Guns could be swapped in real time. You still played it from a third-person perspective, but it didn't have tank controls. It just had the standard 3D movement controls where, as we said earlier, Moving up moves the character away from the camera. Moving down moves the character closer to the camera. But this whole version was scrapped eventually and heavily modified into what we got because the the fully 3D environments put too much of a toll on the PlayStation hardware. They couldn't get the frame rate up high enough to be pleasantly playable. And it also kept the character models from being detailed enough to be scary. So when they discovered that they could just create uh, as you see in the final game, functionally flat images for the backgrounds. That allowed them to make much more detailed characters and much more detailed enemies, which is how you got the, the really cool, still highly detailed character models, even at a distance of 30 years. Uh, that They really kind of make the game sing. The 3D controls were swapped for tank controls, funny enough, not because of any technical considerations or anything like that, they were uh, believed to be a better fit for pre-rendered backgrounds, since once they moved from 3D environments to pre-rendered backgrounds, the camera would just would have to switch. Uh, with pre-rendered backgrounds, uh, uh, a camera can't move around, because if it did, you would see the artifice, since the pre-rendered background is, of course, simply a flat image.
2: I was going to say, it's worth noting, though, there was a build of the game that had the free movement controls with the pre-rendered backgrounds that they tested.
0: You're right. You're right. You know, that's a good point. And and I think that's where they discovered, A, that the the controls were a little bit awkward when the camera would shift, but B, that uh, they just made it too easy to not get eaten by zombies, right? (laughs) What do you think about tank controls, Hamilton? Oh, Lord. Um, He's been waiting for this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a fan of tank controls. Um, I appreciate that it limits your ability to move and that's kind of the whole point especially if you're taking into consideration that um the game is based on shambling zombies so they're not gonna be moving too fast presumably um which is why i understand that they try to make quicker moving enemies in terms of hunters and other creatures that we'll get into a little bit later yeah and I think in the remake, there are some monsters that can move a little bit quicker because mm-hmm. they anticipated that you would have quicker rea- uh, reaction time.
0: The um, genre had been around for a the while. Round, yeah, that. it had
1: been around long enough where it's like, okay, well, now we can set up something where if you really hate tank controls, we'll give you traditional controls, but we're also still going to have to make this scary. So we're going to make these monsters able to, um, to catch up with you. For me, my frustration was... Um, it, it created tension, but it was a little artificial yeah. tension for me in the sense that like it's less scary about the fact that I have to sit here and press the right button and my my character slowly but surely moves to the right. <laughs> they rotate in place, rotate like in you do place in like you do in real life, and they're moving. So their their character models are also moving, just in place, and then you have to press up for them to run. And I'm just like, all right, my. My tension has gone to annoyance because
0: he's not moving. Um, I guess it can hurt your suspension of disbelief too, right? Yeah. It it almost makes it less lifelike.
1: Because like, I'm not, I mean, I haven't ran from a whole lot of things in my life, but I would (laughs) presume that if I needed to run from something, I probably wouldn't slowly turn in place to one thing, to one side until I had to run. Um, but that's also kind of the same way that like bosses work and like yeah. this game works in the sense that a lot of the bosses in Resident Evil games are fought in a very small environment right. at first because they anticipate the tank controls and they also want to make it seem like so you're kind of trapped with this monster, which that again I can appreciate, but the the inability sometimes to just get out of the way <laughs> makes battles a little bit annoying for me. So I don't hate tank controls. In fact, I really much appreciate what it's trying to do. Yeah, It's just I don't like the increase of frustration that I get instead of the tension that I want from how scary something is.
0: Yeah, I can dig it. A lot of folks um, have the same problem with Resident Evil 4, which we're going to get to in a few months, where uh, the even though it feels like a relatively modern third person over the shoulder shooter, the main character can't move while Mm -hmm. they're aiming. And so that's uh, intention with how people play modern shooters. Uh, But the enemies move in such a way that if you could move while aiming, it would remove all of the challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's this stumbling block that makes it much more difficult to play for a lot of people that at the same time is so baked into the design that not having it trivializes the gameplay. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting problem. The development of Resident Evil would end up taking three years and involving over 80 people, which was significantly larger than anything Capcom had previously made. Like you think back to the Mega Man games, that for as polished and popular as they were, not a single one of them took more than about nine months to design and had more than kind of a skeleton crew of like five to ten people working on them. And even Capcom's games in the 1990s, things like Street Fighter, still didn't have that many people working on them. Uh, But happily, uh, even though the Capcom executives did not believe that the game would sell well, uh, Fujiwara, for example, was replaced about halfway through development by somebody else who very nearly canceled the game. Happily, the project was allowed to continue, and upon release was a massive commercial and critical success, dramatically more than Capcom had been expecting.
2: Yeah, so two more uh, pieces of information I thought were interesting about the near cancellation of Resident Evil. Uh, It wasn't just internal opposition at Capcom. At some point, they had hired a consulting firm uh, to kind of help them get through the slump they were in, and the consultants were pretty adamant that Resident Evil was a project that should get the axe. So Fujiwara really had an uphill battle, uh, keeping this on the, the release schedule, but he did it. Yeah. Uh, Also, one thing that helped Capcom uh, fund this, the CEO at the time owned a winery.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, this is in that book. This is in Itchy Tasty. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh, he was able to siphon money from his winery into Capcom to keep it afloat until this could get released.
0: Yeah. Capcom actually almost went bankrupt during the period that Resident Evil was being developed. Uh, and, and thank goodness he had that, that side hustle over in the U.S. West Coast, eh? Yep. Hmm. It was released almost simultaneously in Japan and North America. It came out first in Japan on March 22nd, 1996, and then in North America eight days later on March 30th. It was titled Biohazard in Japan, but was renamed internationally because of the perceived potential for a copyright conflict with a dose game and a New York City punk band, which both had the name Biohazard. The international release had quite a bit of content censored from the original, and this is kind of an interesting change in culture between when this came out and now, uh, just because of a a change in how Japanese rating boards worked during the 2000s. While they're functionally the same game visually outside of those censorship issues, the biggest mechanical difference between the original version of this in Japan and the international version is that Capcom stripped out the auto-aim from the international version. And this is a huge problem, because the game was designed with the idea that if the player tapped a button, they would auto-aim their gun at the nearest enemy. When you don't have auto-aim, you're kind of trying to figure out where the enemy is in relation to the character, and it doesn't quite work in these pre-rendered environments. So you sustain quite a bit more damage uh, when playing the international version. And the reason for that, which I think is pretty funny, is that uh, rental stores were not a thing in Japan at the time. So Capcom believed that if players rented this in, say, North America, they would beat it in a weekend if it was too easy and never buy it. Terrible decision. (laughs) Well, you know, I say it was a terrible decision. The game was a big commercial success and led to lots more Resident Evil. So maybe it was a necessary evil. I don't know. (laughs) A necessary Resident
1: Evil. A necessary Resident Evil. (laughs)
0: to move on to gameplay
2: yeah jumping into the gameplay we already touched on some of the uh, design choices and its similarities to alone in the dark it's third person fixed camera angles on pre-rendered backgrounds Uh, you move your character with tank controls and just to reiterate that's left and right rotates your character and then forward and back causes the character to move uh, in the direction that they're facing in addition to that there are two different playable characters jill and chris they're is both uh, kind of route differences between these characters as well as mechanical differences. Chris moves faster and has more health. Jill has more inventory space and gets a lockpick uh, that gives her access to kind of some more
0: resources. She's the master of unlocking, so it's only natural. Mm-hmm. She is.
2: <laughs> uh, and I think that's probably a good segue into kind of talking about one of the overarching kind of design principles of this, uh, and that has to do with like the scarcity of resources and inventory.
0: Yeah mm-hmm. uh, Does Chris get uh, four or five inventory spots? I forget I thought he got six and Jill got eight Well, I guess it depends on whether you look at um, the knife as a something that you can swap out of your inventory or not I always take it out of the inventory because the knife is useless
2: You're it right, is. Jill does get eight Sorry about that So I played through as Jill Most of my time at least was as Jill So I'm going to probably reference her by default Her playthrough mm-hmm. by default Because of the limited inventory space that encompasses everything from healing items to puzzle items, keys, weapons, and the ammunition for reloading those weapons. Yeah. You have to proceed through the game and make choices about what you want to move forward with you. And it also really impacts your ability to collect resources because if your inventory is full and you find new things you want... You might not necessarily be able to pick them up and you have to backtrack to get those items and store them for later in a save
0: room. It's like tank controls, right? Like it's a level of friction that is a key part of the gameplay because it forces you to make decisions and uh, makes things harder for you, right?
2: Yes. And it's important because of the way that this game contextualizes the space that you're in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you look at this on paper... The mansion in which this takes place is a relatively small space, but you have to backtrack a lot, Yeah, and that makes it seem bigger. And normally backtracking in a game might not feel good, but it's really strong here because zombies do so much damage to you and ammo is so precious, you are constantly having to try to make the call as to whether or not to spend ammo to eliminate a threat from a spot in the mansion or to try to bypass it. And so identifying areas that you are going to be moving through a lot is really crucial to making that decision as to whether or not you want to try to fight a zombie in an area or avoid it.
0: Yeah, that's part of the fun of it, right? Like it's almost more of a um, like an organic way of what more modern games do with like skill trees where you kind of specialize a character in one type of action or another. Mm-hmm. In this case, you're making those kind of uh, decisions on specialization more organically because you're deciding to like specialize on a route through a mansion and whether you want to have more healing items or you want to have more ammo by virtue of which resource you're going to use to either eliminate enemies or restore your health after being hit by them because you decided not to eliminate them. Exactly. It's also very
1: interesting intentional uh design choice as well because if you had ammo that's just kind of flying from everywhere you kind of feel invincible and i would take yep. away the tension because it's like i could just pretty much machine gun everything so right. why am i scared of it but when they intentionally give you so very little resources um and you're going to miss when you shoot I don't care who you are, (laughs) unless you play this game a lot. Yeah, auto-aim or not, yeah. Right, you're going to miss. So eventually you're going to run to that dread of, oh god, now I have no ammo, I have to run. Yep.
2: Well, sorry if this seems like off the cuff, but since we mentioned save rooms already and the preciousness of resources, preciousness of resources, we should talk about save ribbons. Because this is a pretty Mm -hmm. contentious aspect of this game design that we have somehow managed to not bring up yet. Yeah. In Resident Evil you find these typewriters, the function is save points. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is not too dissimilar from any other game, but in order to save at the typewriter, you have to use a consumable ink ribbon, which puts a finite amount of saves in the game.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen this in any other game. I don't believe you have either.
2: I personally really disliked this system. Uh, And in Itchy Tasty, they mentioned that in an original build, the save ribbons were even more scarce.
0: Yeah, can you imagine? Mm.
2: Yeah, and they decided to make it a little more generous, which is good, because I found myself out of save ribbons for most of this game. Um, What did you two think of this?
1: This run, I did not have an issue with save ribbon, but again, I've played multiple times. Um, But I will say, as a child, I was immensely frustrated for two reasons. One, because I was not great at... um, At conserving my ammunition, which I think both of you have seen. It has also not become that much better, and I am far older. Yeah, just, just as a
0: quick note, listeners, when Resident <laughs> Evil 2 Remake came out, just a little bit of context on this, Spencer Hamilton and I got together and had kind of a uh, like a, a launch party for it. And uh, we just, you know, we swapped controllers around. It was the old ways. And uh, Hamilton just blew through our ammunition fighting a liquor. It was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh,
1: that's something I still struggle with a little bit because I always feel like I'm going to have good aim and I never do. It's a and fun way run to play. out of things.
0: That's how I play Mario games.
1: Right? And like 17 bullets later, I'm like, well, okay, great, I'm dead. Um, so like I said, this run, not so much. Um, but in the past, I had trouble with ink rooms, obviously, because of conservation of ammo. Yeah. And also, um, Figuring out where to go, because sometimes zombies will respawn, um, although they'll respawn in different areas.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting problem with this, because it, yeah. it, it undermines the the decision-making that you're doing with path control.
1: Yeah, which is also kind of annoying, because yeah. even if I try to strategize and kill certain zombies, they're either, one, going to respawn in that room, or two, show up in a different room, mm-hmm. which has happened to me, and then I'll take damage, and I'm like, oh, crap, and then I'll end up dying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, again, the lack of saving really got to me. So I think the only thing that kind of saved my playthrough this time is because I know it. Yeah. I kind of feel for those who are just starting off.
0: Yeah. I had that problem too, actually. Uh, I hadn't played this game in, in a while. I did, uh, have to restart the game after running out of Ink Ribbons and my second run on, I did just fine. It feels like there's a shortage of them pretty early in the game. And then once you hit maybe the midpoint of it, you get an abundance of them if you look around. And so they're, they're not really especially well balanced, I don't think. Maybe that was done because the developers thought the early areas were easier and the later areas were harder, which is true. But you don't know that as a player. So you're going to be saving more often early on, I think, unless you know the game back and forth. You know, to be
1: honest, I think a better system would have just been we would have just been to give you a certain amount of increments at the very beginning, mm-hmm. so you don't have to hunt for them, and then you can strategize from there when, at what point in the game that you want to use them. Oh, yeah. But if it's you don't know to- how,
2: if you don't know how long the game is, though, then you can you can really hose yourself if you don't ration them properly, and you end up almost out with a big chunk of game left to go.
0: I guess you'd end up with a different. I problem. guess you'd end
2: up
1: yeah with a different one. Yeah, but on this one. I, I don't know. I, I do understand both sides. I guess to me personally, I would be less annoyed because just like, oh, well, this was on me that I used this at the wrong time. But it's a learning curve. But to mm-hmm. me, there's no learning curve in finding increments at random and having yep. to just go around the place and hope to God I find one. <laughs> and if I don't, I just die because then it, then the responsibility feels like it's not mine anymore. It's yeah. just stupid gameplay.
2: I was going to say, I'm glad you brought that up, Hamilton, because I mm-hmm. wanted to segue somehow into a save, an alternate save system that I thought up that I think yeah, would have mm-hmm. worked a lot better. Sure. So the problem I ran into was, so I just moved recently and I kept having to put the game down to like go take care of stuff at the new place. So I ended up so burning... You have a save spot. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up burning a lot of ink ribbons in spots where it's not that I necessarily felt like I needed a checkpoint... I just Mm -hmm. needed it to function as an extended pause button because I knew I was going to be not playing it for like six hours or so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I got to thinking, you can't give a player too many save ribbons. And I do kind of like it as a finite resource because it did build a feeling of like tension and fright that I don't think could be easily replicated without a finite save resource. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. But I have played tactics games before Where to kind of prevent save scumming, but still allowing you to save mid-battle, you can create like an active save that once you save it there, it will close the game. And then when you open that save back up, it deletes that save. Yep. Mm. And I think that would have been good here. If you had the option to use an ink ribbon to create a hard checkpoint for yourself, Mm -hmm. but also have the option to create a temporary save that lets you close the game that goes away when you relaunch it.
1: Yeah, because that's my issue with um, there are some horror games out there that effectively or not effectively they just don't have a pause button because they want to keep <laughs> right. you immersed in it. Well, like Dark Souls, right? Yeah. But then that also annoys the crap out of me because I'm like, okay, well, if I have something to if I have something I legitimately have to do, yeah, it's really not cool that I just have to wait here
0: and just my character is just gonna die and I lose everything. One of the ways that I think they've handled this better in more recent Resident Evils. Uh, particularly the uh, remakes of 2 and 3, is by allowing you to save whenever you want, but uh, giving you a lower grade at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. So it serves the purpose of making players want to replay to get a better grade at the end of the game while also not punishing folks who just want to see the story and don't want to be hampered by a restrictive save system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think in some ways that's ideal, though it does then lose some of the tension of the inventory management. I do agree that I think I like the grade system,
1: though, because sometimes, yeah. I mean, I, I get trying to make the games that are going to kind of please the... um. The old Resident Evil players, but mm-hmm. there are some people who... Like, I don't believe, like, you should chase away newcomers either who just... yeah, Because, like, as the games move along, the plots get more advanced. And, like, again, the GameCube remake actually has ideas that they wanted to have in the original right. but couldn't. And some people just actually just want to see the story because sometimes the story is actually pretty good.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: But if you, like, punish people and just be like, no, it's like, you're either perfect or you're dead. <laughs> um... Then it's just like, uh, I don't know if I really want to play this. So I,
0: I think giving a grade and like it just goes less and less is, is more fair. This does reflect, just to kind of take this out to the really macro scale, the difference between old school Capcom and modern Capcom, right? Mm-hmm. Like old school Capcom was designing games for arcade cabinets. And they were very clear about the fact that games designed for arcade cabinets are supposed to be punishing because you don't want the player to get all the way through and see the ending. You right. want them to keep pumping the quarters in. This is kind of at a halfway point where Capcom is still shifting into home console development. Mm-hmm. where And it reflects with the auto-aim being jettisoned from the international version, where like they want players to struggle. They want players to fail, restart, and play again, rather than necessarily having the experience you would in a contemporary JRPG, say, where you're just saving as often as you can. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a great way to design a game. I think I think they really figured it out later on. Yeah. But I think it does reflect where they were at mentally in the mid-1990s, mm-hmm. with still not being entirely divorced from the world of arcade game development.
2: I agree. So we mentioned the weapons in this game, and both characters have access to uh, a variety of them. You get access to a pistol, a shotgun, a magnum, which is a, a very powerful and an uh, upgrade to the pistol, but uses a different type of ammo, so I don't know. I guess it's not actually related to the pistol after all.
0: <laughs> it's like, it, it's also a handgun, right? But it's yeah. got a rifled barrel, so like it's Like a more stronger powerful. pistol. Exactly. Leveled yeah. up.
2: Yeah. Uh, and then Chris and Jill get access to a different heavy weapon each. Uh, Jill gets a grenade launcher, which has three different types of ammunition for it. And uh, Chris gets access to the flamethrower. Additionally, at the end, there's a cutscene that gives you an access to a rocket launcher that you get to use against the final boss.
0: Now, Spencer, I think you and I had talked about this. The three different types of ammunition for the grenade launcher, uh, we couldn't really find any significant difference between them. I gather that the acid rounds are supposed to be better against Yawn the Snake, and the flame rounds may be better against something. But I think you and I use the grenade rounds pretty interchangeably, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, From what I could gather, some types do do more damage than the others against specific enemies, but it wasn't enough for me to notice too much. Uh, Just because inventory space is so precious, I always tended to just always use what I had the least amount of, because once I burned through one type, that was another inventory spot.
0: Exactly, Mm -hmm. right, same.
2: So Resident Evil isn't just uh, kind of running through corridors, shooting shooting down zombies it's also known for the puzzle elements that it incorporates and the way this is structured kind of loops back into the discussion we had before about how the game really forces you to become kind of like intimately familiar with the space you're in right because it's structured so that each area in the game i generally think of there being four major areas each one will have a larger kind of macro scale puzzle that you have to solve and mm-hmm. I call it a puzzle, but it's mostly just a collect-a-thon. There will be, like, four emblems or keys or something that you need to get to unlock a large door to the next section.
0: Yeah, it's a puzzle in the loosest sense.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, And then the process of collecting those items involves you going through multiple kind of smaller-scale sub-puzzles within an area. So you'll be constantly running around the same space, finding doors that are locked or things that you cannot progress through, Mm-hmm. until you find an object that will let you go back to that space and then push a little bit further down that same line. And to just constant running, kind of zigzagging back and forth until you accumulate all the resources you need to move on to the next section of the game.
0: Yeah, it's like just this side of a Metroidvania, but instead of getting new abilities, you're just getting new items that you use up. Mm-hmm. Like randomly yep. you'll find, oh, here's a lever. Oh, exactly. well, this lever's probably
1: going to open this door, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Hex cranks and mm-hmm. Octo cranks and quad cranks And the whole nine yards There's a
1: lot of cranks And spheres or metals Yeah, metals <laughs> Put into things
0: Metals upon metals
1: Yep
2: Since they're so pivotal to, you know, the game, let's go through, uh, I'd like to go through a kind of a list of the different enemies you encounter real fast.
0: Yeah, let's do Mm -hmm.
2: it. So there are your kind of rank and file Romero-esque zombies. Yep. There are also zombified dogs referred to as Cerberus.
0: Yeah, they're real gross looking.
2: Mm -hmm. They are. uh, These are pretty, I like these because they move very quickly, which is a problem later enemies have because the game is not designed for you to be able to handle enemies this quick very well. However, the dogs are fragile, so that sort of balances out in a way that makes me not hate them the same way I hate hunters. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah, you're right. We've got snakes, and the wrinkle with snakes is that they poison you, which reminds me that we should probably discuss herbs.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, we we could kind of section off into that real quick. Yeah, what do you got to say about herbs?
2: So... Herbs are kind of a consumable healing item in the game. There's three varieties, green, red, and blue. Uh, Green will heal some portion of your health. You can combine them with red herbs uh, to create an item that will fully heal you. Mm -hmm. Blue herbs just cure poison. And this is really important because once you get poisoned, your health will will just continue to tick down. And so if you do not have a blue herb with you in a section of the game where you're dealing with poisoned. That means you have to try to run back to a save room Mm -hmm. to pull a blue herb out of your box. If you have one stored and get rid of it and that extra time it takes to run back could prove to be fatal or at the very least will just, you know, take enough health that you have to use a higher level healing item. Right. -hmm. So it's really important that you bring blue herbs with you, which means you are losing an inventory space for sections of the game where you're, have the blue herb
0: yeah i found this to be a little bit undercooked in that there weren't enough enemies that could poison me effectively the snakes never managed to poison me um i think the spiders or yawn the boss snake are the biggest dangers for being poisoned and i think i think yawn was the only enemy that actually successfully poisoned me the chimeras can poison you too can't they oh maybe um, they usually kill me so quick that I don't manage to die, <laughs> of you don't to die of the poison. Right, yeah. I hate the chimeras.
2: I had mentioned hunters. These are an enemy type introduced partway through the game. Uh, and these are like weird human amphibian hybrid zombies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These move very quickly. They can jump large distances and they have these claws that they attack you with. And. I found these to be pretty frustrating.
1: These are the worst enemies in this entire game, in my opinion.
2: The problem I ran into mostly with them, honestly, was their ability to jump. Because what felt like it would happen a lot of times to me was they'd start coming at me and I would shoot at them. At this point, I had a fair amount of grenade ammo stockpiled, so I was not too shy with it these things were dangerous enough and I was running low enough on health items that I would rather expend the ammo. Mm-hmm. But what would happen is if I would shoot a grenade, they could sometimes jump over the grenade, land mm-hmm. next to me, and then they would get off two attacks. They attack twice in quick succession. Yeah. That would kind of stun my character and then attack again and I would die.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was my experience too. They killed me more than any other enemy.
2: Uh, also, Lord help you if you ever get stuck between two of them well you're doomed (laughs) you're you're, you're pretty toast (laughs)
0: yeah Yeah, you're doomed
2: spiders are introduced at some point they also poison you and they move along the ceiling these didn't feel too dangerous to me because you are able to aim up and down in this game so right Mm -hmm. yeah the spiders are dealt with very easily they don't move too quickly and you can just shoot them off of the ceiling.
0: By golly, these are some of the creepiest spiders in a game that I've encountered. Mm-hmm. It's something about like the low poly look of them. Right. Like your brain kind of fills in the details, and the sound design on them is perfect. And getting poisoned is also just scary because right. of just the fact that it sucks. Because
1: now it's just like I usually don't have a blue herb with me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so now I have to go find it. And unlike so many other games where it's like there's there's ways around poisoning, that usually is what gets my um my Health low. Right. And the problem is when you're burning through health and stuff, you just can't do that in this game. So I hated using green herbs to like heal myself because that's less for what's coming
2: your way. Mm -hmm. The only other enemy I think that moves along the ceiling are the chimeras that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. You know, this is interesting. I don't recall finding anything alluding to this in the game material itself, but according to the Resident Evil wiki, the chimera are formed by umbrella kind of splicing- human ovums with fly DNA. So oh, you've got cool. Some cr- mm-hmm. Yeah, you got some Cronenbergian horror uh, creeping its way in here, too. See, that's why I go on the wiki, because, like, there's so much stuff that's explained in yeah.
0: books and things that they don't mention here. Same thing with Hunters.
1: Yeah, because, mm-hmm. like, the
0: Chimeras, if memory serves, do not turn up in any other Resident Evil game. Yeah. I think they're exclusive to this, and, like, that, that fly connection makes sense. Like, they look like little horrible, mm-hmm. like, fly monkeys or yeah, something. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you'd never know it to play the game. Mm-hmm. I think... Now, luckily, the Chimeras you only encounter briefly towards the end of the game. But they're they're like hunters, but they can travel along the ceiling as well. Well, apparently, like, the only successful, like, bioweapon that was created were the hunters. Um, it's interesting that you say that, too. Because mm-hmm. knowing later Resident Evil games, the yeah. first Resident Evil Revelations mm-hmm. has the hunters being used effectively as a bioweapon.
1: yeah. So a lot of these things later on they go into is just, like, these are actually kind of failures. And the tyrant was, too. Like, (laughs) pretty much everything except, like, Yawn was successful, but all for the wrong reasons because they still couldn't
0: control it. So it still killed a lot of the uh, researchers. Right. Well, speaking of Yawn, why don't we talk about the boss fights from Resident Evil real quick? Mm Mm-hmm hold
2: on i'm okay with skipping the bees but i want to talk about the sharks oh you're right
3: you're right you're right
2: (laughs) i guess in hindsight there's not that much interesting to say about the sharks but they are a named enemy um they are Mm -hmm. a failed umbrella Mm -hmm. experiment called referred to as neptune so the setup for this is there's a, a laboratory section and they had this these sharks as experiments in a tank and when the outbreak first happened the sharks broke free and the lab flooded uh, mm-hmm. So when you're navigating this section, there is a central room you move through uh, where you have to just constantly avoid the sharks that come after you.
1: So how do you defeat all the sharks? This is why they're a failure. How do you defeat them?
2: <laughs> you drain the water and then they just flop around. Exactly. And mm-hmm. you know, they magic harp at you menacingly. for a yeah, while. Yeah,
1: it's a real magic. Yeah, they experience. say that in the files, not in the game, but they say that in the, um, in expanded, um, Like supplementary material, they say, like, that's why they're failures, because take them out of water and they can't
0: do anything. You'd think if they were going to modify sharks to be more dangerous as bioweapons, they would at least give them the ability to move on land. I was like, really?
2: (laughs) You know, I'm team Neptune, because you could say the same thing about any of the other bioweapons they made. If you throw Tyrant in the ocean, you think he's going to do better than Neptune? I I mean,
0: I've seen Lucio Fulci's zombie and that zombie effectively fights a shark with a knife. So I think the angry, angry, wet tyrant.
2: (laughs) (sighs) Well, shit, Chris has me there. (laughs) So uh, by and large, the boss fights in this game are kind of terrible.
0: Yeah, they are. Mm
2: -hmm. They're pretty much just open rooms with the enemy coming at you. So mechanically, they all play out as you just kind of walking backwards, shooting grenades at them until they're dead. Yep. Mm -hmm. So they function as resource taxes uh, where, you know, if you're not good at the game, you're going to end up burning through a lot of health and you will always end up burning through a fair amount of ammo. It's almost more just like a I like to look at them more as a test for the section that comes prior to it. You know, it's were you able to get to this point of the game without expending, you know, an unreasonable amount of resources during the preceding part.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had never thought about that until I listened to the podcast Watch Out for Fireballs, which has pretty extensively covered this series, and they explained that problem with Resident Evil bosses, and I've never been able to unsee it.
2: I feel like at a certain point in the franchise, the bosses got better, but then I hated almost every boss in 8.
0: They all just felt mm -hmm. like this,
2: just a square arena where you dump all your bullets into it, and then you move on.
0: So who are the bosses in this, Spencer? Spencer? Uh,
2: we've got yawn the snake uh, this is a giant snake that can poison you and also can kind of i don't know if this is just like a quirk of how it like the enemy pathing works but i assume this was intentional it will kind of wrap around and constrict you it that doesn't trigger an animation or anything special just mechanically the character model of the snake can kind of block you off from being able to move and avoid its attacks yeah
0: yeah, and if you're low enough on health, the snake can eat you whole, which is a pretty fun animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got
2: Plant Forty Two. Someone else <laughs> might need to chime in with anything special this does, because I just stood still and shot fire grenades at it until it died, and I it never hit me with any attacks.
0: Oh, that's interesting, Hamilton. See. Did you do? Did you fight this boss the really roundabout way, or did you fight it straight? What's the roundabout way? You can go mix uh, poison and poison plant 42 by going into the basement. No,
2: I just did it straight. Oh, I did that. You have you still have to fight it after you do that, though.
0: Well, yeah, but it takes like two seconds, right?
2: Yeah, well, that's what I did.
0: Oh, Ooh. okay, yeah. I well, think you so can fight you... it straight, right? Do you have to poison
2: it? Can, no. can you get to it straight? Because there's a door you have to go through that's blocked off by its roots, and you mix the chemicals... And then you pour the chemicals on its roots to kill those, and you go through the door, and then after that point, you fight the rest of the plant. Oh, so, but right? this is
0: very. This does not match my recollection, Spencer. This is what's odd. The plants are on a different floor from, or the the roots are on a different floor from the plant boss. So you don't need to um, to burn the roots to get into the boss. You get into the boss and then leave it, and can go poison it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're having like a real Mandela effect problem here. All three of us are like, well, well, there's like a
2: third instance where you kind of fight it because it's there's a plant. The top part of the plant is blocking off something near a a room with like a fountain in it, and you add herbicide to the fountain, and that kills that
0: part. Oh, that's much earlier in the game. Yeah, that's basically just a little puzzle. Yeah,
2: yeah, and then when you go down below. You do the whole meta puzzle with mixing all, figuring out how to mix the chemicals together. I really like that And then like the, that room, puzzle. the room that's mm-hmm. blocked off with the roots is in, like, the room with, like, the, it's like the break room in the laboratory. Because it's like when you go into the shark room and turn left, it's there, right? You go in there, there's, like, a pool table, and then it's blocked off with the roots. You burn those.
0: Man, like, your, your version of the guardhouse is arranged very differently from my mental version of the guardhouse. <laughs> like, the room with the pool tables is on the main floor, Oh, you're and right. That's the got lab the spiders is in, the in the it. Based on the main floor. Yeah. Yeah,
2: but there's one in the basement. You're right though. I guess the r- floor hmm. above that is where the plant is. So what the hell did I burn the roots for?
0: You <laughs> discovered like the Slenderman creepy pasta like bonus guard House, super secret <laughs> plant boss thing. Plant 58. <laughs> plant 58. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't uh, know. Plant but- 42. Hey, the more
1: things you kill in this mansion, the better. So I'm glad yeah. you killed whatever it was.
2: Yeah, you were right. You can fight Plant Forty Two without killing the roots. I never did that.
0: It's like it's a much harder fight it was, and it a much was less interesting fight. Not easy to yeah. fight. Oh um, yeah, that's what you did, right? Because
1: that's what I did. Yeah. It is. I'm not gonna say it's much harder. Yeah. Um, it's just longer. Hmm. Um, I mean, you can still just go in there and just kick its butt. Yeah. It's a plant.
0: <laughs> it is a plant. <laughs> Resident Evil happily would do away with plant enemies at some point, mm-hmm. but for some reason in the first couple they had a real I thing. Don't know, for they them. love their, their mutant plant things. i yeah. like, all right. They are not scary. No. They're just
1: plants, but bigger. Just giant plants. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of this first game too, because you just have the giant snake. Yeah, it's extra. The giant big. plant. Spencer's going to tell us what the next giant boss is. Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, we got Black Tiger, the giant spider. There's not too much to say about this. This... I didn't encounter much with this that was too different from fighting the normal spider enemies, except maybe once this dies, it releases smaller spiders out of its body that I think can still attack and poison you, but thankfully you can kill those just by running over them and squishing them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the average spiders can release babies from their body too, but I could never figure what triggered it.
2: Then the final boss is Tyrant. Uh, This is kind of Set up to be a, well, maybe we'll get into this more probably in the story section, but this is just sort of the kind of ultimate final product that the Umbrella Corporation was trying to make with all this zombie chicanery.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: the fatal flaw being that its heart is on the outside of its body, which <laughs> seems like a pretty big mistake, but what do I know? I'm not a, I'm not all a right? scientist. I'm not a
0: scientist. According to Wesker, it is the greatest life form.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you fight this twice, once in a room where you just kind of run around a table and shoot at it, and it goes down pretty quickly. And then you fight it a second time in a more open area where you get your hands on a rocket launcher and then use the rocket launcher to explode the boss.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's basically just like a taller zombie with like a bony claw for an arm. Pretty much, yeah.
1: It'll deal it'll deal some heavy damage if yeah. you let it, but... I mean it it walks fairly slowly. It's not like the later ones that have like dash moves and can right. like really be annoying.
0: It is less challenging to face than two hunters. Yes, by far. Yeah.
1: So next up, we're going to talk about the story. You have the uh,
0: the stars. The special Um, tactics and rescue... Rescue something. It's not squad. Special tactics... It's special tactics and rescue service. Service. It should be squad. It should be squad. But the the
1: service, um, who get chased into a um, seemingly abandoned uh, mansion by a bunch of zombie dogs. Yeah. When you get into the uh into the mansion, you find this is where it depends on who you're playing as because you can yeah. either play as um Jill or as Chris. Um I think the iconic person to start out with is actually Jill. Yep. Because yep. she's the one who is going to search around to see what's going on and she's going to see the very famous scene of the first zombie actually slowly turning your direction. Which, as I understand, they're actually very, very proud of that moment. Um, they should be. It's yeah, like,
0: yeah, the introduction they really of the captured <laughs>
1: just how terrifying the monsters in this um, in this mansion are. Right. Here's where I'm going to get a little vague—not vague, but not go too in depth because there really isn't much story. You're either playing as Chris and Jill, and you're just trying to figure out your way through this mansion and survive, and you're waiting for help. Right. Um the helicopter that flew away at the beginning should be coming back to save you. You usually have to figure out a way to survive. Mm-hmm. So what I will touch upon, however, is the key case of, it's Chris, Barry, and Jill, and Wesker. And as you go through the game, Wesker disappears. Um, and you're not quite sure what happens to him. He just kind of disappears. You will see him again later, for better or for worse. <laughs> now, Barry in this game, it, does he, like, straight betray Yeah,
0: Barry's a gem. Um, Yeah. For so Barry, Barry is initially with Jill in the mansion. Chris is by himself. Right. Barry is with Jill. Um, Barry seems to be helpful to Jill for Mm -hmm. the majority of the game until. uh, Well, we'll get down to that in like in the noteworthy moments.
1: Yeah, because there's two different. I mean, there's two different betrayals in this game. Right. Right. Good point. Yeah. Barry's. Barry reason. is being blackmailed. Yeah, his yeah. reason is a little bit different, but I think it's
0: still being blackmailed yeah. um, to be against uh, the crew. Right. I did want to note uh, real quick, part of the setup is that there were two stars teams. There was mm-hmm. Alpha and Bravo. Bravo team is the one that's initially set in to investigate uh, some murders that have been occurring, some, some unidentified murders in the Arclay Mountains. And uh, they are the ones who are all killed, except for Rebecca, who manages to successfully escape to the mansion and later team up with Chris as his partner character. Chris and Jill, Barry, Wesker, and Brad, the helicopter pilot, are all members of Alpha Team, which is sent in when Bravo Team fails to report. Uh, So that's just a little bit of the setup for this. That will be relevant in future episodes when we dive a little bit into what happens with Brad, the helicopter pilot, and Rebecca, Bravo Team's medic. But for now, just know that Alpha Team is kind of who our plot centers on as they work their way through this mansion and try to contact their escape helicopter pilot. Mm -hmm. So for season two, as far as the overall plot is concerned, we wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, we wanted to, rather than walk step-by-step step through the entire narrative of each game, to highlight just a few noteworthy moments of of each. The first noteworthy moment that I would
1: like to cover is actually a series of noteworthy moments. Namely, the monster reveals, which is... Spooky. Mm-hmm, which is the big pull of the Resident Evil series. Yeah. For instance, um, as I just mentioned, the zombie... The very first zombie where you see the head slowly turning. Um, they put a lot of effort into that. That is a scene um, that they have actually tried to uh, recreate with future games. And other mm-hmm. horror uh, games have actually tried to emulate that as well. A very slow turn of a creature. Uh, but another noteworthy uh, monster reveal is when the hunter
0: makes its appearance and actually chases you in first person. And the way that it's introduced is from this, like, CG-rendered first-person perspective, Mm -hmm. where it moves through all of the areas that you have just been through, Mm -hmm. that if you're watching closely, you'll think, oh, shoot, that's where I was. Oh, shoot, that's where I was. Oh, it's opening the door that I just came through. Mm -hmm. Just really top-notch direction. The other great first-person sequence that we encounter in... Resident Evil, and, and it does kind of make you wonder if these are left over from that earlier build of the game where it was in first person. Mm-hmm. I guess not, since these are kind of pre-rendered CG sequences. But you know, maybe they took something about the art design. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the other big first-person sequence is when the shark enemies are introduced. The uh, we see this originally from the perspective of one of the sharks as it jets through the water towards the player character around several hallways. Uh, so that, again, is pretty alarming. It's not quite as successful as the Hunter debut, but it is still pretty scary since you're wondering what's moving that fast in the chamber that I'm in. Mm-hmm. So our second noteworthy movement, to understand
1: the world of Resident Evil, you have to find notes and memos throughout the mansion. There is a famous memo that is found in this game that is called the Itchy Tasty Memo. Yeah, yeah. It is about 19 pages long, and it documents The Keeper's Diary, which starts out with him speaking very coherently, talking about feeding the monsters, namely the tyrant, mm-hmm. um, and working with his co-workers that he has a kind of not-so-great relationship with. And then ends with him turning into a zombie, and his manner of speech becomes very disjointed, Yeah, he talks about being itchy...
0: He eats dog food at one point because he's just hungry. Hamilton, could we get a, a quick dramatic reading of the final page of this poor sucker's descent into madness? Let's see what he was thinking. May 19th, 1998.
1: Fever gone, but itchy. Hungry and eat doggy food. Itchy, itchy. Scott came. Ugly face, so killed him. Tasty. Very last sentence. Itchy.
0: Tasty. Hmm. Grim stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And moments later, you meet the keeper himself as he jumps out of a closet to try to eat you. The third most noteworthy thing about this game is actually the uh,
1: the goofy dialogue. Yes. Um, the dialogue is absolutely outstanding in this game. So good that it's so bad that it's good. Yeah. Um, Spencer, do you want to give us
2: some um, information about the dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So. my understanding is that Chris is gonna try to cut some in here because there's no way I could do it justice trying to <laughs> replicate it myself. Here yeah,
0: like. these are these are some gems, and they've become you know memified and so forth on the internet. But there's nothing quite like the the original. And playing through the game, you're just you're you're tickled as heck every time one of these dialogue sequences come up because mm-hmm. it is just the campiest nonsense.
3: <laughs> we are in great danger. We must organize a search for the others. And get the hell out of here.
2: Yes, sir. Understood? Yes, sir.
3: What is this?
2: What is it?
3: Blood. Jill, see if you can find any other clues. I'll be examining this. Hope this is not Chris's blood. Jill, here's a lockpick. It might be handy if you, the master of unlocking, take it with you. Just take a look at this. It's Forrest. Oh, my God. It's awful. I'm going to find out what caused Forrest's death. It looks like he was killed by a crow or something. That was too close. You were almost a Jill sandwich. <laughs> you're right. Barry, thanks for saving my life. But Barry, didn't you see you're going back to the dining room to do some research? Why on earth are you here? Uh, I just had something I wanted to check. Now, let's get back to searching for the lost captain and Chris, shall we? Thank you, Barry. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. This hall is dangerous. Maybe it's better to secure our escape route first. There must be a back door somewhere. Let's try to find it first, shall we? Okay. Let's separate again. Just a moment. I found something. What is it? It's a weapon. It's really powerful. Especially against living things. Better take it with you. But how about you, Barry? I have this. Oh, Jill, this house is dangerous. There are terrible demons. Ouch! You're wounded. What kind of demon attacked you? It was a huge snake. And also poisonous. Oh. Poisonous? Oh no, Richard, hold on. There is serum. Oh no, I should have brought some with me.
2: So prior to this recording, I-, I was trying to think of different reasons to justify, you know, how in the world this dialogue got this got this way. Yeah. But fortunately, uh, it's explained in Itchy Tasty. In a developer interview, it was with uh, Shinji Mikami himself, I believe, correct?
0: Exactly, yeah. It was was a 2007 dinner that the uh, author had with Shinji Mikami. Yep.
2: Yep. Uh, He discusses that the game does not have uh, a Japanese audio version. Mm -hmm. It's all in English. Right. And since most uh, people in Japan have taken some amount of English in high school but are not necessarily conversational in it... They intentionally tried to keep the dialogue as simple and like evenly paced out as possible so that anyone with like the most basic knowledge of English could sort of parse what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think they use specifically the example of Barry holding up his gun and saying, I've got this, <laughs> uh, was Shinji Mikami's kind of uh, main example. And, and it's like anybody who has even the most basic understanding of English, would understand the context of what's being said there, even if from a native English speaker perspective, it doesn't sound right.
2: Yeah. And again, you'll hear the real thing, but it's not just the word choices that are bizarre. The cadence with which everything is delivered Mm -hmm. is really, really bizarre. And I, you know, they don't explicitly say this, but I think that's just to kind of purposely separate out every word from one another as evenly as possible yeah. so that it's easier to pick up on those things. Because sometimes if you don't speak a language, you know, or the conversational base of a language, things can sort of blend together in a way that makes it difficult to pick up on even if you know what the vocabulary is. Exactly. So a fourth
1: noteworthy moment um in this game is probably the most famous of any of the Resident Evil games yeah. is uh Albert Wesker's Betrayal. Yeah. Um so from the beginning, I mean, he kind of screamed villain anyway, <laughs> wearing his sunglasses indoors. Just mountains of gel haircut, in his hair. Just mountains of gel. You do find out that he's basically kind of the big bad of this game. Yeah. Um. Despite being the head of stars. Yeah, there's nothing that they really touched upon too much as to what he's really working for
0: unless it's himself or somebody else. He almost comes across during his betrayal of the team as something of a zealot here. Mm-hmm. Because he, he he describes the tyrant, the great boss monster, as the ultimate life form, right? Um, and he's going to unleash it on the world.
1: However, it does seem as though Wesker does get his comeuppance for his betraying literally, it seems, everyone because <laughs> he is apparently killed by the final boss of this game, yeah. Uh, the tyrant. You'll just have to wait and see if we see him or not. See him or not in a later. Uh... Later episodes. Yeah, maybe this is the last we've seen of Albert maybe. Wesker. Maybe, maybe it is. This so is the last time you you wear your sunglasses at night. Also, this leads us to our fifth and final noteworthy moment of uh, Resident Evil, which is blowing up the mansion. Kaboom! Um, so, as you would expect, as most mansions do, uh, most mansions do, this one has a self destruct sequence, um, <laughs> which you have to activate at the very end which also pits you in a race against time, which is why you're trying to fight off the tyrant, because the timer's ticking down while you're waiting for the rocket launcher to be delivered to you, which it eventually does, and you're able to use that, and you are able to escape the uh, the destruction of the mansion, which,
0: like Wesker, hopefully that will be the last we see of the mansion. We'll just have to see. Yeah, I like this uh, sequence because you depending upon who you're playing as, if you're playing as Jill, you prime the mechanism itself. If you're playing as Chris, Rebecca primes it. But um, in either case, you need to kind of throw yourself into danger to set the mansion to self-destruct in an effort to keep this from reaching the wider world. Uh, It is um, unlike later Resident Evil games where there is inevitably some kind of self-destruct sequence set. (laughs) Uh, and a race against time to escape from the facility that you're stuck in. In this case, the player character has agency in it, which I thought was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. I just find okay. it fascinating that they actually built their
1: research facility. Actually, Umbrella has built all of their facilities with <laughs> self-destruct sequences.
0: Yeah, there there are a few things that are true in <laughs> almost every Resident Evil game. Pretty much. You will always find a lab there will always be a self-destruct sequence, and mm-hmm. if there is a helicopter, it's there, there's always it's hard times for the helicopter in pretty much, yeah. <laughs> One thing that we did want to highlight with this game, and we'll do this a little bit more as the series goes on, um, unlike Season 1, where The Legend of Zelda very rarely got substantial re-releases or ports that were different from the originals, Resident Evil is almost the polar opposite. Resident Evil games tend to get quite a few ports, and oftentimes they're different in interesting ways than the original game. So the first of these for the original Resident Evil were a Director's Cut and the Director's Cut DualShock Edition, both for the original Sony PlayStation. These add an easy mode to the game, a rearranged mode where it moves items around, as well as integrating auto-aim back in. The other big contemporary re-release was on the Sega Saturn. Uh, This is very similar to the original version, the pre-Director's Cut. It doesn't have auto-aim. Um, I did play this just a few hours before recording just to see how it plays. I had read that it features worse graphics, but I can't quite see it. It does have two unique monsters in it. They're just palette swaps of the hunter and tyrant, but I thought that was still pretty fun. You get like a gold tyrant in there. Chris also fights a bonus tyrant in the lab in this version of the game. And you can find a zombified version of the character Wesker, which is pretty cool. The Saturn version is most interesting, though, because it includes the battle mode, which would later kind of evolve into the mercenaries mode in later series entries. In this iteration of it, it's kind of a bonus mode accessible from the main menu. You have to kill all of the enemies in a series of rooms with a predetermined weapon loadout before a time runs out. So this is kind of a more action-oriented game mode that's, uh, it feels a little bit more in common with Capcom's arcade offerings rather than the more long-form home console games that they've been developing. And you know, now that I'm saying it out loud, I wonder if this was developed as an arcade it game. It might have, because battle modes were all the rage yeah. with all these games. Like even, um, what am
1: trying to think? Even Mega Man had a battle mode, I think Mega mm-hmm. Man 7. Yeah. It was like, this is out of place, but
0: you know, this is just the way it is. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. It was the style of the time, as uh, Grandpa Simpson might say. (laughs) The next big iteration of the game is one that was never actually released. It was a Game Boy Color port, which was contracted to the United Kingdom's Hot Gen Studio. And it was very nearly completed before Capcom axed it in 1999. I could not imagine what this game would look like. I should have showed you this. I mm. have it, actually. Interesting. Um, believe it or not, I swear, this is the most ambitious Game Boy Color game ever made. I have huh. played it. It is the original Resident Evil. Really? It's Resident Evil on a Game Boy Color. Interesting. It's entirely pixel graphics. There's nothing 3D about it. But mm-hmm. the sprites are so carefully detailed that as they move further away from or toward the camera, mm-hmm. they are reshaded versions of the sprites to approximate 3D. Really? It's incredible, absolutely incredible put a lot of work into that. Uh, they did. It's it's actually, it's a little bit of a shame that it never got re-released. I will say that it is by a wide margin the least fun way to play Resident Evil. <laughs> it's not remotely scary. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have all of the dialogue, and they have transliterated it all into text for the Game Boy Color version, because of <laughs> course, uh, voice acting wasn't a thing on the Game Boy Color. Mm-hmm. I will say the versions that started circulating in the 2010s are incomplete. There are more complete builds of the game that have just never circulated. Because the the circulating ROM of it only has zombies. They're the only enemies that appear. Um, You can't get the grenade launcher. I think you can only get the knife, pistol, and shotgun. Hmm. Um, So it is a mid-development build, but uh, the modding community has fixed enough bugs in it that you can get through most of the game. Hmm. The most exciting re-release of this is actually a full remake, which we're going to cover on a later episode. But this was developed by Capcom itself under the direction of Shinji Mikami for the GameCube in the early 2000s. It brings in content that had been cut from the original Resident Evil, as well as dramatically modernizing the graphics. Like, this remake is so good that once it came out, I did not play the original Resident Evil Mm. until we were preparing for this podcast. And the fact that it came on the GameCube seemed so random, and yet it worked. It did, yeah. So well. The most recent re-release of this was on the Nintendo DS in 2006. It was called Deadly Silence. This includes improved character models, but worse audio. It has a classic mode that lets you play through the PlayStation original version of the game with auto-aim, thank goodness, as well as a rebirth mode that I played for the show that includes new enemy placement and first-person fight sequences. Uh, which, among other things, include a uh, boss fight. It's the only first-person boss fight, but you have to fight Yawn the Snake a third time. It is terrible. <laughs> um, if you get that, just play Classic Mode. It's the best version of the game. It is pretty cool to see enemies where you don't expect them. It's it's a nice way to kind of scare yourself if you're used to the mansion. But it's just not balanced as well. Which version did each of you play for the show? So I played the... um. On the uh,
1: PlayStation Vita, I played the original, or the Director's Cut.
0: Exactly, yeah, that's the Director's Uh, Cut version.
2: Mm -hmm. Same one I
0: played. Yeah, I think that's the most accessible version at this point. Even the the most recent version of it, Deadly Silence, is just a ludicrous amount of money on the internet.
2: I have nothing but nice things to say about that Vita version, but for the love of God, if that's how you're going to play it, please disable the back touchpad.
0: Yeah, that's oof. Yeah, I don't know how you did that for a while, Spencer. (laughs) Also, what the heck was Sony thinking? But I guess that's a a conversation for another time. (laughs) Spencer, what did you think of this game? I
2: really, really enjoyed it. Um, Most of my playtime with the original Resident Evil storyline came with the remake that I played on my GameCube back in the day. Uh, And I really didn't remember too much about the original version. I was expecting to like this a lot less. Uh, yeah, same. The mm-hmm. Tank controls grew on me a lot more quickly than I was expecting. Um, I, you know, The common consensus around them is that they're really bad and have aged poorly. Mm-hmm. And at first it does take, it, it's quite an adjustment because so few modern games use them. But I'd say less than two hours, I was scooting around pretty good with them. Um, <laughs> and, and it felt pretty seamless.
0: I think scooting around is the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, I did have some complaints with the save system that I I went over before, but I don't know. It it, it was, it was really good. And I think it's kind of special because as much as, as big of a fan as I am of the modern resident Mm evil, there is something to this, that those failed to carry forward into, you know, the modern entries. Yeah. and it was really nice to go back and play this. This, this gets a pretty hearty recommendation from me.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's getting increasingly hard to find, uh, which is kind of sad. It, I, think, I think the main way of accessing it at this point is on the PlayStation 3 or Vita online stores, which were very nearly dismantled this year in 2021. I assume that they will be sometime in the next couple of years, uh, so it will no longer be accessible through that means. The only other means of accessing this on relatively modern hardware is through the much maligned PlayStation Classic mini console, uh, which it was included on. But um, shoot, I've never met anybody who owns one of those. I think I know all of one person I think who has one. There you go. Somebody not, bought one. Not
1: terribly popular, though. <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton, what did you think about this game? I I did enjoy it. Um, I will admit, I have never been a fan of the um the inventory system just based on my gameplay style yeah i it's definitely a very unique way of doing it like usually in most games your inventory changes based on like weight Mm -hmm. like you are overburdened and you can't carry this amount of things you have to drop it
0: yeah like that's the rpg style it's like the
1: rpg style in this game you're you have slots and those slots take up um like your items take up those certain slots. So it's like a puzzle game almost. Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure out where you're going to place things. Um, and I did get used to that because I've also played other games that kind of have that puzzle puzzle aspect. Not my favorite, but it's doable. And especially in this game. Um, we already covered the save mechanic again, so I don't need to cover that. But that would be my only kind of um, issue with it. And I, I did mention in the beginning that the tank controls are not my favorite either, but it doesn't stop you from playing this game at all, in my opinion. Um, I got I got used to it well enough where yeah. I could still play through it. I could still run away from enemies when I needed to. A few cheap deaths here and there from Hunters. <laughs> but honestly, I think that this game, it um, its difficulty level is actually pretty fair. Um, I would say the only thing that would really chase anybody away is the... Um, just making sure that you have ammunition, yeah, and make sure that you're careful with your inventory. Uh, but other than that, perfectly accessible. I suggest everyone who can access it nowadays, as mm-hmm. we just said, sadly, give it a try, or at the very least, uh, look it up online and listen to all the uh, the wonderful
0: dialogue. But um, how about you, Chris? What are your what are your final thoughts on this game? I like this a lot more than I was expecting to. Kind of like Spencer. It had been a long time since I had played this, so I was expecting to not enjoy it. I was expecting it to be kind of a pale shadow of the remake. And it holds up. You know, it it is a pale shadow of the remake in, in a certain sense, since the remake is functionally this, but more extensive and prettier. And yet this game does, as Spencer said, have something of a unique charm of its own. It's striking how fully formed this game is. It's striking that this would create a formula that the Resident Evil series would pretty much use and barely change from 1996 through nearly a decade later, whenever Resident Evil Zero came out, maybe 2003 or so. I enjoy the inventory management and save system more than most folks do, uh, because there's not otherwise a lot of meat on these bones. Like, the um, those feel like pretty critical parts of the experience to me. But also I understand where there are points of friction that would drive other people away. Same with the tank controls. They are a real stumbling block for folks coming to this fresh. And, you know, I I respect that. This game still holds kind of a special place in my heart as where it all started. And I uh, I think fans of later entries would be doing themselves a favor to go check this out if they can get their hands on it. That's all for Season 2, Episode 1 of the Franchise Festival Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please consider contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash franchisefestival or leaving us a review on iTunes, which helps boost our visibility. If you have any feedback, please write to us at franchisefestival at gmail.com or reach out to us through the contact page on franchisefestivalpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter using the handle at franchise underscore fest. To catch all of our latest updates. Until next time, we've been your hosts Chris. I'm Spencer. And I'm Hamilton. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye.